Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Preparing my audition tape to be the new Senate parliamentarian. It's election shock therapy. I'm Chris Moore. And outside of my parliamentarian duties, I'm joined here by Matt Cookham. Hey, Matt. Hey. <laughs> and Mitchell Crum at University of South Carolina Aiken. Hi, Mitch. And uh, if you couldn't if you couldn't hear that, that was the sound of Mitch waving from South Carolina <laughs> on a Zoom call. Um, and also joining us um, here at Bethel University is Andy Bramson. Hey Andy, how's it going? Hey Chris, good. Andy, how much would you have to be paid as an annual salary to become the Senate parliamentarian? Oh man. Uh, six figures for sure. <laughs> yep, you bet. <laughs> well, we're going to get DC, probably well north of six figures, actually. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get we're going to get to why um, the Senate parliamentarian is in the news right now. But congratulations, guys! It's Infrastructure Week uh, here on the podcast. We're going to take Again. this quick. Again, some more. No, this is really one of the first times we've talked about infrastructure on this podcast. And we're going to give True. a quick layout for people who are wondering, what are these two huge uh, trillion-dollar bills making their way through various parts of our legislature? And what do they mean for Americans? And why have we chosen to uh, build them, build this legislation the way it has? So we're going to try and answer just a few basic questions, basic primer about uh, infrastructure legislation. And we're going to do that um, right now, starting with the first of two large infrastructure packages, which was passed by the Senate back in um, in, in August and is now in the House awaiting uh, conversation there. This bill clocks in at uh, just about a trillion dollars. It passed the Senate on a 69 to 30 vote, which means 19 Republicans came over and um, voted uh, with the Democrats to approve this bill. Here's what's in it. Um, there's about a $110 billion for roads and bridges, another $66 billion for passenger and freight rail, another $65 billion for broadband, another $65 billion for power and electrical grid stuff. Water gets another $50 billion. Um, resiliency, which is basically proofing against um, floods and flood walls, those kinds of things. Uh, public transit, airports get a $25 billion, all the way down to um, just cleaning school buses and ferries. So, like, you know, replacing old inefficient school buses um, gets another $7 billion. So if this is a lot of basic material uh, infrastructure, right? Bridges and roads, vehicles, um, power, um, uh, broadband, those kinds of things. How are we paying for this? Well, a lot of it's not actually new money. Um, about uh, $200 billion is repurposed unspent COVID money. Um, another uh, $67 billion comes from the sale of some bond bonding issues. Um, there's a uh, anticipation that the infrastructure itself will return some economic growth. And so that's being figured into the pay fors um, how we pay for this kind of thing. Uh, there'll be a few uh, applying information reporting requirements to cryptocurrencies is supposed to rake in 28 billion. I'll believe that when I see it. Um, 
and then some 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 savings in other kinds of places, including sa- sales from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which would help to keep gas prices low during this entire process. So all that to say, this bill um, is passed the Senate. It's going into the House. The House is not clear yet when they're going to pass it, although they had said they wanted to have a vote on it by the end of September. But now Jim Clyburn, who's third in the House, has suggested that that might get delayed. Um, But on the other side, we have a bill which currently is estimated to be about three and a half trillion dollars. And that is not has not been touched in the House, but it has it's hung up in the Senate because everything under the sun is in this $3.5 trillion bill, including um, a substantial uh, stab at immigration reform. And the Senate parliamentarian, remember her, um, a long-suffering woman named Elizabeth <laughs> McDonough, has ruled that the um, immigration reform cannot be in what is otherwise a budget bill. And why does this have to be a budget bill? Because they're trying to pass it through a reconciliation maneuver. Reconciliation is a rule that only applies to budget bills um, and allows the Senate to pass something with a 51 vote majority. Otherwise you need to break a filibuster, which the Democrats cannot do. Guys, how did we get to two giant and separate infrastructure bills, which are really the centerpiece of the Biden administration's domestic policy agenda? Um, Well, we have to um, sort of um, look back at uh, what seems like ancient history. I know COVID does weird things uh, to the time-space continuum. Um, It's like Brigadier around here, man. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Uh, But yeah, so, you know, travel back um, with us uh, to the spring of this year, um, which I think is 2021, last time I checked. and um, basically, sort of as as President so President Biden um, and um, congressional Democrats passed um, a big COVID relief uh, package back uh, at the beginning of his administration, right? Um, and then after that, they considered, well, what other things can we? What other sort of spending options do we have to basically promote? Um, Biden's, you know, his his legislative agenda, right? Yeah. Um, and infrastructure was seen as one of the things that could get some get some traction in both the House and the Senate amongst Democrats and Republicans. Um, right. You know, sort of regular old infrastructure is theoretically something everyone can get on board with, right? And of course, that's going to be especially important given how closely the House and the Senate are divided, especially the Senate, right? Where Democrats have uh, the slimmest of majorities, 50-50 with Kamala Harris breaking the tie. So getting some Republicans on board is going to be critical. Infrastructure is is maybe the ticket, right? Um, but of course, um, there are divisions within the two parties as well, right? Um, there is a, a decent size, um, very progressive wing of the Democratic Party that wants to do a lot more than sort of the traditional infrastructure. Um, they want to do... Um, what they, you know, things that they've called human infrastructure, right? Which, as you know, Chris pointed out, uh, involves pretty much everything under the sun, right? Um, but of course, there's not going to be an appetite um, amongst um, most Republicans and even some moderate Democrats for um, a multi-trillion-dollar legislation um, piece of legislation that dramatically expands the welfare state on multiple fronts. Right? There's just not going to be a consensus on that, and so the idea was, um, well, there's no way that we can pass um, everything under one piece of legislation. So we're going to sort of put this on sort of the two-track model. We're going to have the bipartisan 
legislation, um, which is going to be traditional infrastructure. And then there will be a separate piece of legislation um, that will contain sort of the, basically the, be the, the progressive um, Democrats wish list, put everything in that. Um, but of course, because there's not going to be, um, you know, Republican support for that, that's going to be has, passed through the reconciliation process, which bypasses the supermajority requirement for getting closure um, in the Senate. Um, so Democrats could go it alone. But that means that that bill is going to be related only to spending measures, right? So you can't lump in other sorts right. of um, changes, as you pointed out, Chris, with regards right. like to immigration. Policy, for right, exactly. So we're on the two-track model. And and um, the, the process of even sort of negotiating um, on that bipartisan bill has taken months and months and months. And basically, we're at the point now where um, we're, we're getting closer um, to um, a deal being um, being passed. Um, so um, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi has agreed to vote on the bipartisan um, infrastructure plan on September 27th in the House, sort of an up or down mm -hmm. vote. Uh, the Senate has already passed that plan, so we'll see what happens in the House. Um, if if there's a few Republicans that are able to, to jump on board with the majority of Democrats to get the thing passed, there's some concern that, um, that some some Democrats on the far left are going to not go along with this bill um, because they don't want this bill to pass independently um, or without any guarantees that um, the the reconciliation bill will pass. And that's been sort of a point of contention as well. So, um, so it'll, I, I think we will see an infrastructure bill, um, bipartisan infrastructure bill pass in some form. Um, and we can talk about the likelihood of the reconciliation bill passing as well. I think that will pass in some form as well, but probably not a $3.5 trillion bill. It will probably be downsized as well. Let me ask you a follow-up then, and I'll even throw this to Mitch if he wants to weigh in as well. So uh, you basically, is it the case that Democratic leadership from the White House, but also Pelosi and Schumer from the House and Senate, figured out, here are the things we think we can get bipartisan support for. Let's put those in the one billion, one trillion dollar bill. Uh, we'll get Mitch McConnell and some of his Senate colleagues, sixty-nine, you know, sixty-nine total senators supported it, and we'll get them to vote for that. And then we'll put all of these sort of much more progressive policies in this like Amazon wish list, whether ranging from free community college right. um, to a massively expanded uh, daycare programs to. Um, uh, significant funding for um, what's called human infrastructure, all these sorts of things. Um, and then we'll, what we'll do is we'll let Joe Manchin um, take a, a belt sander to that. And we'll have him just sort of grind down the edges of things he's not comfortable paying for until we get from something like $3.5 down to something that Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema are willing to vote for, and we'll pass that. Is that kind of the strategy here? Uh, I think more or less. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, part of, part, I mean, one of the things that I think is particularly frustrating for, um, you know, it's, it's particularly frustrating for this for this Democratic majority is that they they don't have a lot of time and they don't have a lot of. Uh, and, they, and they and they also don't have. Can, a lot I, of can time. I push pause on you there, Mitch? Because yeah. I agree with you, but why don't they have a lot of time? Well, they don't have a lot of time for, uh, for well, for, for one core reason, which is that the midterm elections are coming up here in uh, next year. And yep. basically the midterms, you know, tr usually um, there have been a handful of exceptions, but in almost every case um, on midterm elections, a president's party loses seats uh, in Congress, in the House and the Senate. 
Um, what's, it's going to be a little bit interesting to look at the Senate. We'll probably look at that at some point here. It's not a completely unfavorable map for the Democrats, and it's yeah. particularly not super great for the Republicans. So it'll be interesting to see if they actually can take the Senate. Um, but the House seems much more likely. The House seems... Right. Um, you know, the Democrats un unexpectedly lost seats um, in 2020, and it feels like they are particularly vulnerable in this um, upcoming upcoming midterm here. So especially after the redistricting is done, um, which will be primarily done by um, Republican leading legislatures at the at the state level. So yep. so a lot of right. things working, uh, you know, on, on, on that front. But uh, and so and so and so the clock's ticking and I think they need something. And, of course, the best way to stave off all of this to stave off losing losing power and losing influence is to pass something is to get something through and to be able to point to it and say look at all these wonderful things that um you know that that, that are going to the american people and i and one of the things that's sort of interesting to think about from an electoral perspective is how do they need the huge massive policies and i'm not sure that's true the bipartisan bill might be enough, although then, you know, the Republicans can also claim some credit for it. So I'm sure that's part of the calculus. But nonetheless, I mean, that's that's one big thing. Um, but I think the other thing to think about, and, and this is where you get sort of tricky politics, and this is where, you know, um, Joe Manchin is 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 kind of especially wielding his power, too, is, you know, we talked about the reconciliation process and, the, um, you know, the Senate parliamentarian. But one of the things that's always key to keep in mind is that the you know congress pretty much makes up its own rules and if they wanted to override the parliamentarian they could um yeah. it's always possible in fact that's exactly it's been done a number of times even in recent years um right. the parliamentarian has been overridden you know they they aren't authoritative they simply speak and then you know right they're usually followed but you know they don't have to uh, As a matter of democratic governance, I'm kind of mollified by the fact that they can overrule the parliamentarian and we don't have this unelected bureaucrat who's stymieing our political <laughs> process. Yeah, right. absolutely. Um, so, you know, so but 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 I think part of the reason why they're relying on the parliamentarian to kind of take the heat is because they're having trouble corralling the more moderate members. Of yeah, the that, that's right. That's right. One of the things to think about is anytime you hear Senate Senate parliamentarian, you should immediately think having trouble pulling our people together. I mean, that's basically what that means. <laughs> yep. So and, and, I, and I do think it's, you know, it'll be interesting to see what, you know, what what exactly can come out of this process. I mean, I think they are pretty serious about needing something, um, you know, and it's, it's just a, you know, it's, it's a question of, can you herd all the, all the cats together? And I, I don't know, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see what, what eventually boils, boils down here. Yeah. I'd like to add something on the parliamentarian thing. I mean, so the parliamentarian isn't just making up a ruling. The parliamentarian is just right. reading the plain text of the rules right. that the Senate mm -hmm. itself has implemented for the Senate. Right. Um, the Senate can change the rules by simple majority, which, of course, it's not going to do. It's not going to change the rules for the reconciliation process because there's not a majority. So uh, Mansion Cinema and I would warrant, I mean, several others aren't going to want to blow that up um, because they know they might be in the minority. Right. Yeah. Um, in maybe a couple of years, um, they will be in the minority again. Right. Because the Senate goes back and forth and the minority is going to have an interest in maintaining one of its most important, you know, it's it's sort of institutional prerogatives. Right. Yeah. Um, and so 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 that you know, so the Senate can change its rules, but there's not a majority that are willing to do that right now. Yeah. 
Um, and so, so I would say, you know, it's not merely about sort of corralling the, the moderates. I mean, I, I find it interesting that, you know, Biden came into office, um, you know, and he won the, the electoral college vote, right. And he won the popular vote, but he, his win was not by what was not by a huge margin. Right. And they barely won the Senate. Actually, it looked like they were going to lose the Senate. And it's only because of, you know, a, a crazy situation in Georgia and Trump sort of stepping in it that the Senate was given to Democrats and even got the trifecta that they have now. But the Democrats, some of them on the progressive side, overread this as a mandate. Um, and Biden himself read this as a mandate for him to be the new FDR. Right. Which, of course, FDR had super majorities in both the House and the Senate, just crazy, huge majorities, which we've never seen since. Right. In both chambers. And, and so he was a lower polarization. Well, right. Right. So so basically a lot of the progressive Democrats, even sort of Biden, misread the situation and said and basically overpromised what they were going to do in the first year. Um, right. Instead of understanding that they had the thinnest of majorities and have to be moderate. Right. But but that, you know. But Bernie Sanders and some of the other leaders of the progressive wing and the in the, the Senate and the House have basically insisted um, we have to have everything or we're not going to give the moderate Democrats anything. Right. Do you and buy I think that, though, Matt? Because, I mean, if, if Bernie Sanders was presented two one trillion dollar bills, which would expand the social safety net and infrastructure, does he say no to that out of peak for not getting um, three point five trillion? I don't think he's ultimately going to say no to some of that, but I think that explains why you've seen the Democratic Party sort of tearing itself apart over the past sure. half year. Um, because, you know, if if the Democrats had a big, you know, a larger majority, then I think the progressives can make a case for, you know, they're being able to implement more of the policies that they want on their wish list, right? But they don't. Um, and, you know, they, like the Republicans have often done when they've been in control, play this sort of, like winner takes all sort of legislative strategy that ends up bogging down negotiations and basically meaning Congress, um, you know, doesn't operate effectively anymore. Um, and I've gone on rants about Congress before and I'll, I'll spare you all the rants now, but, <laughs> um, but polarization basically is, is meaning Congress operates less effectively um, in so passing legislation in a timely way. So go ahead and put a bookmark in that because we are going to come back to polarization in our long form podcast this month when we when that drops hopefully next week if we can get up if we can pull all the Avengers together here. Andy, I cut you <laughs> off. What were you going to add? No, just I mean, maybe to kind of tease that a little further too. I think not only does polarization reduce the possibility of working together across these lines, right across partisan lines, but it's also I think reducing the effectiveness of the caucus itself, right? I mean, like because you're you're just it's it's so difficult for you know, the Democrats in the more relatively more center to work with those in the polls, right? And the same thing, we saw the same dynamic play out with the Republicans um, and their poll, right? So I think that's just the, you know, how, how do you get them all to cooperate? So I think, yeah, I mean, like, you know, then you have to sort of lean on, well, the parliamentarian won't let us do this, but it, it does kind of mask those deeper issues, like right? what's going on within the caucus. Okay, so one more question from me, guys, and it has to do with really the first, the $1 billion bill that's already passed the Senate is in consideration in the House. Uh, most economists, conservative and progressive economists, suggest that allocating money to infrastructure pays dividends for the economy. They vary on how much money, but basically every dollar you put into infrastructure has some um, multiplier of dollars that comes out of it in terms of economic productivity. So 
what's the argument against big spending on physical infrastructure? Well, I don't think there is an argument against physical infrastructure. Um, I mean, it seems like there's, I mean, one of the things, you know, you were talking when earlier when you were talking about the big bipartisan bill, I mean, that was brokered by mostly by at least, at least a lot of it was brokered by, um, the Senator Rob Portman from Ohio, um, mm-hmm. um who's a, you know, well-known, very sort of policy wonky, um, Republican. And, yep. uh, you know, one of the things, you know, this is basically his, his, in some ways, almost his baby. And I think there's a lot of Republicans who are willing to get on board, um, with that, you know, with that, with that particular, well, because of well to, to be, to be pointed, Mitch, 19, we're able, we're able to get on board and vote for right. it in the end. 31 yep. didn't. So were that were those thirty were those thirty one basically not willing to give the Biden administration a win, or is there another kind of grievance with this bill or with this level of spending or that sort of thing? I mean, there may be a handful that are sort of fully ideological about it. I mean, you know, like a Rand Paul, for example, maybe may, 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 may Rand Paul, right? I mean, so, <laughs> um, yeah. but for the most part, I think it's yeah, it's I mean, it's pure partisan posturing. Um, okay, most of them. So they knew it was going to pass, and they could afford to take a stand against it. Right, right. Okay, pretty much. Makes sense. All right. Those are the two big reasons you're going to get for opposing. I mean, one is, you know, I just, um, I think this is bad as a political calculation. You get that on the right because we don't want to give Biden a victory. Um, And on the left, you get the, if we pass this, we might not get the other things we want. We want them to all be linked. And so sort of kind of pass from other people's perspective, the good with the bad. Um, And the other reason not to do it is the kind of Rand Paul purist, um, you know, we're, we just don't want any government spending beyond what we have to. And, you know, basically that means I oppose almost everything. Right. And I think, you know, generally in these sorts of situations, you know, there, I mean, we could talk about the sort of the role of earmarks, but it used to be the case that in these sorts of, you know, negotiations on big spending packages that generally what you saw is in order to get, you know, people from both parties on board with voting for it, basically you would have some sort of earmark, some sort of, um, particular piece of spending that was um, designed to for for a member of Congress, a senator um, or member of the House, to be able to you know go back to their districts and say, "Hey, I voted for this piece of legislation, and look, I got into this piece of legislation, this bridge, this hospital, this whatever," and they can go you know present that as sort of their gift or bringing home you know the you know federal money that does direct good for their district. Well. We got rid of congressional earmarks um, and we can debate whether or not they're ethical or, or good policy making or whatever. But basically, that means that, that these members of Congress, they don't really have much to, to bring home. All they have to bring home is a message. Right. Yeah. And in these polar times, polarized times, the message, you know, that a lot of these Republicans are going to bring back home is Biden is a bad president. Biden wants to spend right. huge amounts of money. Here are a few bad things in this bill. I voted against it. So you should vote for me. Right especially in the Republican primaries, right? And you get the same phenomenon sort of on the Democratic side in sort of a similar situation. So so basically all that is left is messaging right now um, yep. and yep. and sort of posturing before your constituency. And I think that's why you see some, you know, opposition amongst some Republicans for, for this. I'm not saying that there's no principled reasons, but I'm saying that's that's mm-hmm. that's a large part of the a large reason for the opposition because it's it's more electorally beneficial for them um, to to oppose it than to be seen supporting it. And yep. it's you know notable too that uh, you know uh, he you know that uh, Portman is resigning. He's or retiring, I guess he's not resigning. Um, and probably having to do a lot with what Matt just talked about. <laughs> okay. 
Mm-hmm. With that in mind, as these bills continue to turn their way through our houses of Congress, we may check back in on infrastructure in the coming weeks uh, once we know what the parameters of the $3.5 trillion bill are, what stays in, what gets cut out, and uh, what the final outcome is of the $1 trillion fiscal infrastructure bill. Until then, though, let me just say, as I prepare to wrap up today, that if you're of a foreign policy inclination, uh, you might pay attention to what's going on in New York this week. It's UN week, which is sort of diplomatic Super Bowl. Uh, Lots of heads of state are either in New York to give speeches before the UN or they've sent pre-recorded speeches in this pandemic era. So expect um, some spicy exchanges uh, from the French and the Americans over a nuclear sub deal with uh, Australia and the UK um, and look for... uh, if Xi Jinping wants to make a statement about rising American-Chinese tensions and about China's assertion of power in the world, will we see any wolf warrior diplomacy? Um, all right, enough of that. Thanks for listening, uh, and thanks for uh, being with us for our uh, these quick-hit uh, podcasts. You can always get in touch with us to request a specific topic at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Make sure to check out our podcast channel, too. It's um, channel 3900, and you can reach them at channel 3900 at gmail.com. Lots of great stuff on the podcast channel. We've got Video Store. Avatar Academics is rounding into the season finale. I'm very excited. And lots of other great stuff, too. So until you hear from us again, thanks for listening, and go Royals. Go Royals.